The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, this is an exciting Sunday for me in terms of preaching and just in terms of the things that are happening here. Five years ago, I ended a 12-week sermon series in the book of Genesis right at this point in Genesis 12, and I'm desiring to pick that up again, and I planned that weeks and weeks ago. And it just so happens that this morning also we get to commission two missionary families that are going out from our number. Now, I think it's even more exciting when the pastor and the pastoral staff don't plan those kind of things, but that God ordains and brings them together. Amen? And so I'm excited uh, for this message and for the series as we're looking through the book of Genesis, but also excited about the moggers and the collies as they go out from our midst to serve the Lord. I want to begin by telling you the story of one of my favorite missionaries in church history, uh, a man whose life and example is becoming, in my mind, more and more relevant as the events of this 21st century unfold. His name is Raymond Lull. Raymond Lull was born in the 13th century, in 1232, into a wealthy family in Majorca, Spain. His home island had only recently been reconquered from the Muslims as the Spanish gradually pushed the Muslim influence back into North Africa. He lived a life of utter decadence and immorality in the court of the King of Aragorn, And yet he was known as a gifted scholar, despite his decadence. During his early 30s, he was born again through a mystical vision that he had of Christ. He was engaged in immorality and immoral thoughts even at that moment when the vision came. And he was immediately struck by conviction of sin. And he was broken by it. And he gave his life to Christ. And he decided to live as a a monk... And he lived the life of a recluse, as did many monks of his day. Then another vision came and changed his life a second time. He had a vision of himself in a forest, meditating alone, far from all worldly distractions. That was his his desire. And then in his vision, he met a traveling pilgrim who rebuked him for the self-centered life that he was living, even as a recluse and as a monk, when there was a world that needed the message of Jesus Christ. Now, understand the context. This was the time of the Crusades, when soldiers were being sent from Christendom, from Europe, to reconquer Jerusalem militarily. And it was this second vision that specifically led him to go as a missionary to the Muslim Saracen people in Tunis and preach the gospel to them. They were the most hated and feared enemies of Christendom. And at that time, the Crusade was going with with full blood and vengeance to reconquer from the Muslims the promised land. Lull wrote this, I see many knights going to the Holy Land beyond the seas and thinking they can acquire it by force of arms. But in the end, all are destroyed before they attain that which they think to have. Whence it seems to me that the conquest of the Holy Land ought to be attempted by love and prayers, and by the pouring out of tears and blood. You see, the Christian church has always 
advanced more by suffering and dying than by causing suffering and dying. And Lull saw this very clearly. And so he wanted to go forth and be willing to even be a martyr for Christ to win some Muslims to him. Lola was one of the most imaginative, courageous, and faith-filled missionaries of all time. But he began his mission trip by being overwhelmed with fears and doubts. And so as he was boarding the ship for Tunis, all of his luggage was on board, everything ready to go, all of his friends and other monks were there on the, on the wharf to see him off, and he was suddenly overcome by fear and terror of dying and suffering and persecution. And he ordered all of his stuff taken off the ship and he disembarked and the ship sailed without him. Can you imagine the conversations that went on between Lull and his friends at that point? And the shame he felt at turning his back on the call of Christ. But just like Abram, as we'll see momentarily, had a false start in his call to follow God, so Lull just had a false start. And the next ship for Tunis, he was on board with all of his equipment. He arrived in Tunis in North Africa. He arranged a debate with Muslim clerics and he did an excellent job. And as a reward, he was thrown in prison. He was then stoned by a mob. He eventually disguised himself as a wharf-dwelling hobo, in effect, and witnessed quietly in the streets of the city of Goleta. He believed that for every one Saracen that he converted to Christianity, ten Christians became Muslims. And yet he continued to witness and to preach the gospel. Eventually, after a lifetime of faithful ministry to Muslims, he openly sought martyrdom at age 80 and boldly preached in Bugia in Tunis until an enraged mob stoned him to death on June 30, 1315. Now, Raymond Lull ventured forth by faith. He got on board that ship by faith, and then when his faith wavered, he got off the ship. And then when his faith was revived by the power of God, he got back on the next ship and he went. And he stepped out in faith, I believe, following in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised, it says in Romans 4. He ventured forth as missionary after missionary after missionary has done since that time, boldly going out in the name of Christ because of a burning conviction inside his heart that apart from this message of faith in Christ, the world is lost, it will perish eternally. And so they stepped out in faith. Now, I believe the scripture teaches that before the foundation of the world, the 4,000-year journey of this message of faith was ordained by God. Before the sun or the moon or the stars were created, before any of us were born, before any of our ancestors were, were born, before the mountains took their shape, before any of it came to be, this 4,000-year journey of the message of faith in Jesus Christ had already been fully formed in the, in the mind of God. This is the eternal gospel, namely, the knowledge of God to the very ends of the earth. God had a timeless plan. And I believe it began with the call of Abram to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go where God told him to go. I believe that Abram stands as the ancient origin of the modern missions movement. Abram is our father in faith because God has always chosen to advance this message through individual people who hear him speaking to them and who venture forth in faith courageously to go where God leads them to go. Now, there is somewhat of a modern hostility to missions, like a form of cultural imperialism, they think. We're taking our views and spreading them around the world as though we alone were right and they were wrong. 
Whereas more enlightened people will come and tell us that uh, comparative religions show that we all have basically the same views, etc. You've heard these kinds of things before. And so the modern missions movement is under attack. And it will be increasingly so in our pluralistic, our aggressively pluralistic country of America. You'll be made to feel ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of its solitary saving power for the ends of the earth. We must resist this shame. It says in Romans 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now, as we look at this call on Abram, we see it comes in a context. I'm resuming preaching through Genesis. I preached through the first 11 chapters before I preached this message the first time in Genesis 12. And so at that time, I think the context would have been a little bit clearer. But let's recapitulate and understand. First of all, who is it that called Abram to leave Ur of the Chaldees? Who was this God? John Stott has a marvelous comment on this. The Lord who chose Abraham is the same Lord who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth and who climaxed his creative work by making man and woman unique creatures in his own likeness. In other words, we should never allow ourselves to forget that the Bible begins with the universe and not with the planet earth and then with the earth and not with Palestine and then with Adam, the father of the human race, not with Abraham, the father of the chosen race. Since then, God is the creator of the universe, the earth, and all mankind. We must never demote him to the status of a tribal deity or petty godling like Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, or Molech, the god of the Ammonites, or Baal, the male deity, or Ashtoreth, the female deity of the Canaanites. Nor must we suppose that God chose Abraham and his descendants because he had lost interest in other peoples or given them up. Election is not a synonym for elitism. On the contrary, God chose one man and his family in order through them to bless all the families on the earth. End quote. Isn't that a marvelous quote? This is the vision and the plan of the God who called Abram. Now, he did not reveal all of this to Abram at that time. He knew what he would do over the next 4,000 years. But he knew that this long journey would begin with this simple step of a call in Abram's life. And so we see the biblical context of this call. Genesis 1, the creation of the whole universe. Genesis 2, the special creation of man and woman made in his likeness and in his image. Genesis 3, the fall of man through disobedience and rebellion. And the first promise of redemption through the seed of the woman, the serpent slayer who would come and crush the serpent's head. And then in Genesis 4 through 11, the twin themes of the advance of sin and wickedness along with the rising up of a, of a chosen race of faithful people, of Seth and Noah and eventually of Abraham. And then in Genesis 10 11, the scattering of the nations after the flood. And now in Genesis 12, the beginning of the regathering of the nations through faith in Christ. That's the context of this call. Now, what were Abram's circumstances? Well, he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Nehemiah 9.7 says, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. Stephen puts it this way in Acts 7, 2 and 3. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. 
He appeared to him. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Now, Ur is in modern Iraq. It's about 225 miles southeast of Baghdad. What could be more relevant? That's exactly where he lived, where many of our troops are stationed this morning. That's where he lived. Now, Ur of the Chaldeans was the, the beginning place of the Babylonian Empire. It was a fertile area, a powerful region. It was a city wealthy in trade and power, perhaps second only to Egypt at that time in development. A powerful and wealthy area. God said, leave it behind. Turn your back on it. Now, Abram was a Shemite or a Semite, a descendant of Shem. He's later called a Hebrew in Genesis 14, 13. He's part of that kind of, that godly line that's following Shem, and, and yet there were problems. Because Abram's father and his brother and his relatives were idolaters. They were polytheists. They worshipped many gods. In Joshua 24.2, it says, Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. Now, interesting, Joshua, in Joshua 24, 2, does not say that Abraham worshipped other gods. He may or may not have, but he doesn't say so. But he does say that his father, Terah, was a polytheist, a worshipper of many gods. Now, into that situation comes God's call. God speaks clearly, but only the believers can hear. It says in Isaiah 1, 2, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And Jesus said in John 10, 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And so God's sheep hear him speaking. But Stephen says that he appeared to him in a vision in some way. He appeared to our father Abraham before he lived in Haran in Mesopotamia. Now this call would shape the rest of Abram's life. In fact, it would shape the rest of human history. And yet, how quiet it must have seemed at the time. I'm sure there must have been big current events going on in Ur of the Chaldeans. If they had had a newspaper, I don't think that the call of Abram would have even made any kind of mention at all. Perhaps the notification of a yard sale or something like that. But other than that, I don't really know. There wouldn't be much of a notification at all. It was just the internal call that he believed. Now notice that God, when he comes and when he calls you, he asks everything from you. Look at the call. He says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household... And go to the land that I will show you. He asks everything. Leave behind everything familiar. Everything of value. Become, as it were, a wanderer on earth. Basically, I'll tell you where to go next. Just leave. You have no place to lay your head. Follow the sound of my voice wherever I tell you to go. Follow me and I'll tell you what to do. Life of faith. Following the sound of God's voice. To regions unknown. Trusting only in God's goodness to meet every need. The Collies and the Moggers are trusting that internal voice. They don't know what's going to face them when they reach the place of their service. They just know that God's called them. And frankly, God isn't in the business of telling us everything that's around the next bend. He wants us to learn to trust his voice. And so Abram was called to leave behind everything. And thus began Abram's life of wandering. Look at verse 4. It says, so Abram left. And then in verse 6, Abram traveled through the land. And then in verse 8, it says, From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. In verse 9, then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Verse 10, Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while. 
Chapter 13, verse 1. Abram went up from Egypt back to the Negev. And so it continued. Abraham himself talked about this in Genesis 20, verse 13. He said, when God had me wander away from my father's household. He uses the word wander. And so it was. It was a life of wandering. Without roots. A life characterized by tents. That would be the symbol of Abram's experience, of Abraham's experience. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10 puts it this way. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So he didn't mind living in tents. He confessed that he was an alien and a stranger on earth with no deep roots, nothing to hold him once he left behind Ur of the Chaldeans in his father's household. And so God asks everything of Abraham at this moment. He asks it all. But he also offers him everything as well. Look at the promise that he makes in verse 2 and 3. Makes three promises right away in verse 2. He says, I will make you into a great nation. That's one. I will bless you. That's two. And I will make your name great. That's three. Three promises. That's what he gives Abram as an inducement to obey him. He could have just said, leave your country and your people and go to the land I will show you. Period. That would have been enough. But instead, he sweetens and bolsters his faith with these three promises. First, I will make you into a great nation. This is a tremendous promise, especially for a man whose wife was barren, who yearned for a son. And we know, as we're going to continue to study, what a journey it would be even at this point until he finally has a son born of his barren wife, a son named Isaac. But this is an incredible promise. I will make you into a great nation. This was the deepest desire of Abram's heart concerning his earthly life. Actually, later we'll see that Abram has his name changed to Abraham, the father of many nations. Not just that he alone would be a great nation, but he'd be the father of many great nations. Second promise, I will bless you. This is God's commitment to take his resources, his power, his sovereign kingly rule, his wisdom, and pour it down on Abram for his benefit. Isn't that incredible? The idea that God is going to take all that he has and just put it at Abram's disposal for his benefit. That's a blessing. I will bless you. Later, Moses gave this statement of God's blessing in Deuteronomy 28, and I love it, 28, 3 through 8. Speaking to Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he has given you. Oh, what lavish blessings. But notice how earthly they are. Do you realize that we who are Christians have far greater blessings, promises of, of infinitely greater blessings than that? Your basket and your kneading trough? I mean, that's not bad, but think about this. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Full forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God, eternity in God's presence with God's people, free from all death and mourning and crying and pain, living in the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness, being made perfectly righteous, 
by the blood of Jesus Christ. What incredible promises of blessing we have. How much greater are they than what Abram was offered here in verse 2. And then third, he says, I will make your name great. Now, this is the very thing that people are always striving for. Our ten minutes of fame. Just to get our face on USA Today. Wouldn't that be exciting? The longer I live, the less I want that. <laughs> Brings nothing but trouble. But uh, it's the very thing that the men before the flood in Genesis 6-4 stumbled over. They were called men of the name. Comes across in the NIV like men of renown. But they were pursuing a name for themselves. They were empire builders. And so God brought the flood down on their heads. And then it was the same stumbling block at the Tower of Babel when they wanted to make a name for themselves and not be scattered over the surface of the earth. So they're building this tower. But here God promises to do it for him. He's not seeking it. He says, I'll just do it for you. And here 4,000 years later we're considering this, this man from Ur of the Chaldeans. We still know his name. Abram, later changed to Abraham. Still considering him. I will give you a great name. But, Abram, I will not give you the greatest name. Because there's going to come one after you whose name will be above every name. So that the name of Jesus, your descendant, every knee will bow, including your own. And every tongue will swear that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I'll give you a great name, but not the greatest name. We'll hold that out for your descendant. And so we see these three promises. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And I'll make your name great. But we also see the purpose of the blessing as well. Verse 2. In effect, so that you will be a blessing. So many of us look at the blessings of life somewhat like, like the end of the line. God blessed me so that he would bless me. And that's the end of it. And then the blessings, which are meant to be a river just flowing through and, and blessing a whole region... Instead, becomes like a backwater, like a swamp. It never moves anywhere. It just stays with us. He said, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. So Abram's call was for a purpose. His purpose, God's purpose, was universal. He had his eyes on the whole world and all the history of the world. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so God has his, his eyes on all nations. He's not just calling out the Jews and going to bless the Jews alone. But he intends from the very start to bless all peoples on earth through Abram. Now, in your bulletin, there's an, there's an insert there from the North American Mission Board, the Southern Baptist Convention together. And uh, it talks there right at the start of peoples of the Arabian Peninsula. Do you see that? And if you look in the back side, at the top it says that all peoples may know him. Well, John Piper was preaching a mission sermon recently and a, a little six-year-old girl came up and corrected his grammar. She told him that people is already a plural word and it doesn't need an S on the end. You don't need to talk about peoples, just people. And he had the pleasure of sitting down and explaining why there's an S on the end of the word people. It'd be similar to there being an S on the end of the word group. Group is already plural, isn't it? But there can be groups, you see. And so there are also peoples identified by their culture, by their language, by their ethnicity, by their physical features, by their heritage. Now, we don't know how many of these peoples there are, but we know that many of them are unreached. They've never heard the name of Jesus Christ or Abraham or any of this. They're living in darkness still. And God intended that all peoples, all peoples on earth will be blessed 
through Abram. And so the Moggers and the Collies are going forth to find some of those unreached peoples and bring them to faith in Christ. Amen? A direct fulfillment of this command and this prophecy, really. All peoples on earth. This is not a command, by the way. It is a prophecy. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to see to it. And so he's called for that purpose. Galatians 3.8 put it this way. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Paul also writes there in that same chapter, Galatians 3.16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So God had in mind at this moment Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ, all peoples on earth would be blessed. And so it was that Jesus spoke to a Samaritan woman at the well, and and ventured into that debate and argument between the Jews and the Samaritans back and forth as to where they should worship. He said, that's not the issue. But I will say this, salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus was Jewish. In Matthew 1.1, it says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So through Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Now, in verses 4 through 9, we see Abram's delayed obedience and his walk by faith. Now, faith and obedience are meant to go together. Genuine faith results in a lifestyle of obedience. Without the obedience, the faith is dead, it says in the book of James. And so faith must result in obedience. And so we see in verse 4, Abram left just as the Lord had told him. And just like Noah before him, he was living in moment by moment obedience to God. Hebrews 11.8, it says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. If you have a faith that does not lead to obedience, you do not have saving faith. Genuine saving faith leads to a pattern of obedience. But that lifestyle of obedience grows gradually. Now, we're going to see over the next few weeks and perhaps months in the life of Abram, who became Abraham, a growth of this obedience, step by step. It's not now what it will be ten chapters later when at last he offers his son Isaac on the, on the altar by faith. So the faith has got to grow. And so he's got faith enough to begin, but he doesn't finish the journey. He leaves Ur of the Chaldeans and goes up to Haran, but he doesn't leave his father's household, the very thing he was told to do. And so Terah and Abram go up and they kind of settle down in Haran. Well, God didn't tell him to go to Haran. If you look at Genesis 11:31, it says, Together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And so the NIV translates, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to land I will show you. So the way that they are translating that, they're saying the call had already come before they settled in at Haran. And it makes sense. So Abram gets up, and he and his father, they kind of go up the Fertile Crescent, begin that thousand-mile journey to the Promised Land, going up along the river, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, and they settle down in Haran. They're not there yet. And why? I think it's because he can't leave his, his idolatrous pagan father behind. Terah doesn't want to go, and Abram doesn't want to leave him. And so it's what we call partial obedience. He leaves the place, but he doesn't leave his father. 
Reminds me of Matthew 8, 21 and 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Later, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. God had called him to leave his idolatrous father. Abram wanted to wait till his father died. Now listen. Finally, Abram left and his father died, listen, in Haran, 60 years after Abram left him in Haran. 60 years. Isaac was born 35 years later. Do you understand what I'm saying? If he had waited for his father to die, he never would have gone. He would have stayed in Haran and he would have died in Haran. And Isaac, the child of promise, would never have been born. He had to obey fully. Leave your father. The one who's worshipping the god, the moon god, and all the other gods there in Haran. Leave him behind and go to the land I will show you. And so he did. Sometimes God calls you to make a decisive break, even with your own family. That's something I faced when I went to Japan. It was a challenge for me. It was difficult. But God called me to do that. He's calling the Kalis and the Moggers and scores of other missionaries to leave behind both believing and unbelieving parents and go to the land that God is showing them to serve him. Now, as he travels by faith, he wanders. Look at verse 6. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. Led step by step through the land, he was living in a tent. Canaanites were still in the land, still owning it, and they would still be in the land when Abram Abraham finally died. But then God, now that he has arrived in the promised land, advances the promise. Look at verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Now notice, he didn't say anything about that with the first call. He said, Just go to the land I will show you. Once he got there, he said, To your offspring I will give this land. And now we have the two aspects of the promise to Abraham. Multiple offspring, descendants, and the promised land. We're going to see this repeated and enhanced again and again. So then as a result of his faith, Abram believed him, he trusted him, and he built an altar to show his faith. And like his ancestor Seth, he called on the name of the Lord and sacrificed to God. Now what kind of application can we take from Genesis 12, 1 through 9? Well, I think the Collies and the Moggers are going to come up in a moment and talk about their call... Uh, already know what application there is in their lives. They're literally going to leave and follow in the footsteps of the faith that their father Abraham had. They're going to, they're going to leave this country and they're, they're going to go as missionaries. But what about we who are still here? Well, first of all, more than anything, I want to urge you to come to the faith of Abraham. If you don't have the faith of Abraham, you're lost. You're still under your sins. You have to come to faith in Christ and trust in Him. You have to hear His voice And he may be calling you to do some difficult thing, to leave behind sin and leave behind friends and even family who are unbelievers and courageously trust Christ. Believe in Christ for your salvation. But having already done that, then what? Is your life of faith over? Is that it? The only journey of faith is walking the aisle and coming to faith in Christ at the beginning? Not at all. Now, step by step, God is calling on you. Calling on you to follow in the footsteps of Abraham. And what does that mean? God cares still about the peoples. Can I give you some specific things to be involved in? First of all, look at the peoples. How can you do that? Well, when I was in college, I got hold of something called the Global Prayer Digest. 
Global Prayer Digest. I'm going to put information about this available next, in next week's bulletin. You can get it on the Internet for free or you can order it for $6. Every day of the month, they give you an unreached people group. They describe what life is like. They tell you what, what the history is and you can pray for them. When I was in college, I adopted an unreached people group and prayed for them for 10 years. There are now 30 or 40,000 Christians in that unreached people group. Do I consider myself personally responsible? Not in any way. But I feel very much like I bought shares in Microsoft in 1984. You know? Because there were no Christians there, and now there's 30,000 of them. And I'll tell you what, the shares I have in that is far more valuable than any Microsoft stock I would have had, which I don't. But uh, I bought shares in what God was doing there. Adopt an unreached people group. This is a direct fulfillment of what God promised Abram. Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Pray for the moggers and the collies. They're going to tell you how in a few moments. But make a commitment to pray for them. Maybe between now and the end of the year. And then if God calls you to re-up, then pray for them some more. And consider going on a short-term mission trip. We've got, we've got missionaries going out to the Far East very soon on short-term missions. Consider going in the future. And support them in prayer. There's a, a bulletin insert there where you can commit yourself to praying for them. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.